in from Midland, Texas. You know, I'm going to have to clean up my act and probably keep it more honest than I usually do because my sponsor's sitting down right in front of me here <laughs> and uh, my number one son and uh, my daughter-in-law sitting right next to her. So, you know, I can't afford to lie too much. <laughs> They'll be able to tell you what it's really like. So, without any other uh, ado, I'm going to try to clean up my act this morning. You know, somewhere, probably not too far from here, someone is drinking and chicken, and probably someplace else, uh, someone is bordering on convulsions, and someplace else, someone <coughs> is in trouble, and a little boy, and a little girl, maybe are suffering under the hell of an alcoholic parent. It is a hell. And they're not here. They won't be here next month. They won't be here next year. Because they're a member of the larger population of people who need this program but don't ever make it. And if you or I came to this meeting this weekend to be entertained, I hope we get absolutely nothing out of it. But if you or I came so that we might better qualify ourselves to carry the message to those out there who are still suffering, then that's good. I'm glad we're here. We are given the format from the big book of uh, what it talks to be like. Our story is just closed in a general way, what we used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Every time I get up behind one of these podiums, there seems to be a temptation to speak beyond my experience. <laughs> However, that which doesn't come from the heart does not seem to reach the heart. I am the brother, the brother-in-law, the son, the grandson, the father of, and the father-in-law of alcoholics. I didn't get here by mistake, folks. <laughs> I used to say at the beginning, I'm the husband of, I'm no longer the husband of, I lost my wife three months ago. From pneumonia, not from the disease of alcoholism. I'm a member of the 710 Al-Anon group in Midland, Texas. And uh, Marceline, who you will hear in the morning, is my sponsor. I came to my first meeting in, I think it was February of 1962. And uh, I don't remember who talked or what they said. I walked in this room. Francis said, I think you go in there. And she went in another room. I walked in there, and there's about 20, maybe 25 women sitting down. And there's one man sitting on the back seat back there in the back. I don't remember who talked what they said. The only thing I remember was after the meeting was over, this guy walked up to me and he said, My name is Blackie Liggett and I said, I'm glad to see you. I thought I was on the son of a bitch in Midland that had drunk a while. Since I have so many alcoholics in my background, this fellow in our group by the name of Cotton, and uh, he walked up to me several years ago and said, Say, I'll try to imitate him. 
say, Buck, since alcoholism is a disease, and you got so damn many alcoholics in your background, did it ever occur to you that you might be a carrier? <laughs> So I'm known as the carrier in our group. He met me out at the airport, oh, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, I guess. He's going someplace, a battalion reunion in, in Alabama, and I was going someplace to talk. I don't remember where it was. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to talk. He's going up there to infect some more good folks, huh? I'm giving the reason why I'm here in the 12th step where it says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we tried to carry this message. It also tells me in the big book that my that I'm trying to fit myself to be a maximum service to God and to the people about me. As I stand right here, my thoughts can literally fly, but I have to encode these thoughts into sounds. And you upon receiving these sounds decode. If you don't have the same thought impulse on decoding that I have on encoding, then we're no longer communicating. Now, this is one of the biggest problems in the world, communication. And it has been defined as the art of transmitting thoughts, feelings, or ideas by writing, talking, or acting in such a manner that understanding results, and that's all what it's all about. I have to choose the correct words to convey to you my feelings and so forth, and then you'll understand. This is what the whole ball of wax is about. Now, example of the misuse of words a peasant in the old country I read this story not too long after I came in Dalton a peasant in the old country found himself guilty about having spread malicious gossip about a friend only to find out later on it was untrue wishing to make amends for what he had done he went to the priest and confessed and the priest said you must take a bag of goose feathers and go throughout the, go throughout the village dropping one feather in front of each doorway eagerly he complied returning, announcing that his task was done. But the priest was old and wise. He said, not yet, my son. Now you must go back and pick up each feather. But the wind will have blown them, blown them all away, he said. So it is with words. Once dropped, it's next to impossible to get them back. I used to be scared when I got up behind one of these podiums. I'm a little nervous now, but this is transitory. I found out in my fourth step why I was scared. Someone else helped me discover this about myself. I was fearful of the possibility that I might say something up here that will give you people the impression I'm not as good as I think I am. <laughs> and that is ego. Uh, incidentally, this is a podium. It's not a pedestal. I was guilty of placing people that I admired and loved, placing them on a pedestal when I came into the program. But everybody that gets up behind one of these things has feet of clay, just like you, just like me. They told me to let go and let God, and I didn't know what, what they meant. I had let go of Frances to die, and she wouldn't die, and I resented the hell out of it. That was how I used to be. The... Uh, let go and let God, a little story helped me to understand this when I read it about uh, how they capture little monkeys, those that will be kept as pets in the jungle. They take a small bottle and 
put a small red rubber ball in the bottom of it, and then they wire this narrow neck bottle in the tree. And the little monkey, overcome by curiosity, reaches his paw down in there and grasps the ball and tries to withdraw it, only to find out he's a prisoner in the small neck bottle because he won't release, he won't let go of what he's got hold of. So let go and let God. This helped me to understand what they meant. Before A.A. A. and Alan, I, my father was a doctor. Uh, his medical doctor, he got graduated from Galveston Medical College in 1897. He too was an alcoholic, but he sobered up before the days of A.A. He and uh, my mother divorced when I was just a kid, and I was raised on a ranch in West Texas. I'm sure you couldn't gather this but the way I talk. Uh, I am really a misplaced cowboy. I couldn't get along with my stepfather, so I decided I'd go to college. And uh, I uh, went to Texas Tech in Lubbock. I moved next door to, fell in love with, and married Francis. We were married in January of 1942. This is a long time. World War II was coming around. The draft was nipping pretty close at me, so I volunteered into aviation cadets, was commissioned a pilot. And I went overseas as a co-pilot. On B-17, I flew uh, 16 missions as co-pilot, and I flew 12 missions as first pilot. I was shot down on my 28th mission uh, over Germany, and I was prisoner of war for approximately a year. I uh, Actually, I flew 27 and a half missions. I didn't come back from the last one at that time. I took the fourth step in combat, not being aware of it in its present identity, but I saw lots of my friends, lots of my buddies get killed. The odds were pretty good from a statistical standpoint that I wouldn't make it either. So I took the fourth step in combat. Uh, I won't try to tell you what the difference is for me between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening. You know, this is the only word that's ever been changed in the program is in the twelfth step. It used to say having had a spiritual experience. This was subsequently changed to having had a spiritual awakening. The difference is, for me, is what I'm going to try to tell you about. A spiritual experience that I had in combat, and possibly the most vivid spiritual experience I ever had in my whole life. It was on my third mission, and my first baptism under real heavy fire. We were at an altitude of about 30,000 feet, which is pretty high in those days. We were in, in formation on the bomb run. The ship off which we were flying was a lead ship right here. We were flying in this position, there was another ship over here, and then there was three more ships underneath here. That was a squadron. There's a high squadron, and the lead squadron, and the low squadron. The squadrons went together to form the group, the group went together to form the division, the division went together to form the wing, and the wings went, with, and then you ended up the whole 8th Air Force. We were on a bomb run, the bomb bay doors were open, the ship off which we were flying, this lead ship, received a direct hit and exploded. Uh, now, the falling debris, the concussion, the instantaneous heat from the radiation of this 2,800 gallons of 100 octane gasoline as well as 10,000 pounds of bombs going off at the same time, uh, you know, it launched me to the brink of total terror. Now, Combat can be best described as hours of boredom and damn hard work interrupted by moments of stark total terror. Now, this was one of those moments. 
I was over at this end of the universe. My heart was in my throat. And I knew that I had portions of the debris from some one of these ships hit the ship off my left wing right over here, and then it blew up. So this happened just, just about like that. Well, if what I'm going to tell you hadn't happened, I believe I might possibly have died from fright. But I was, this is the spiritual experience. I was tuned in on the most beautiful music I had ever heard. I had never heard it before, and I have never heard it since. I heard it one time. Now, the results of this was, at first I thought it was coming from the radio, but I took my earphones off. Then it seemed as if my whole being was a giant receiver tube, tuned in on this beautiful music. And it music the music was not normal music, it defied description. There's no way in the world I can describe it, other than I knew at that time what it was. Then I was zapped clear across the universe, total terror, to complete peace with my maker facing death. And as far as I'm concerned, to be at peace with my maker when I'm facing death is the ultimate of serenity, the ultimate. This lasted for a few moments. I don't know how long. It might have lasted five seconds. It might have lasted 20 seconds. I have no idea, but it gradually faded away. Now, I'm sure that many of you have read and heard, possibly heard, statements to the effect that God is dead. I can assure you, if God is dead, he died since my third mission. I returned to the States in 1945. I went to work for the Gulf Oil Corporation as a geologist. I am a rock nut by profession. I'm an Al-Anon nut also. I'm not a normal nut because the world's full of the normal nuts out there. They don't have this program, and some of them are dangerous. Some of them are dangerous. I'm not a normal nut. Frances and I engaged, engaged a long time in social drinking, or at least for a while she drank in a manner which was socially acceptable. But it seemed like always that the trouble with trouble is it starts out like fun. We had a lot of fun drinking. And then the situation gradually changes. All of my life I've been affected by my reactions to the dis-ease of alcoholism. It is a dis-ease. I can now be at ease around my alcoholics while I'm across the room or across the nation. Distance has nothing to do with it. I've heard some al say they felt like they were encased in a shell, you know, when they first came in. I felt more like that my heart was encased in a huge thick layer of callousness. You know, if, you do, if you're doing some sort of work that you, involves the use of your hands and friction is involved, eventually, if you're working in the yard or in the garden, you're going to have a blister there. Okay? This hurt manifests a blister. Now, nature is going to attempt to protect you. If this is to continue, nature is going to protect you by putting a layer of callousness over that. And if it continues, there's going to be another layer on there. And it continues, there's going to be another layer. My stepdad had callous hands point where he'd reach out and pick up a coal of fire and put it on his pipe. And light his pipe and dump off the coal. His old hands were thick and calloused, you know. Okay. Uh, this is the way I felt around my heart. A layer of callousness. And I didn't, I didn't know it. I knew that I didn't have much use for people. I would have, 20, 23 years ago, I'd have stepped over you and gone right on. You know, 
the alcoholic Al-Anon, you know, don't trust any of those so-and-sos, you know. <laughs> the world is a hell of a place. So I thought. Anyway, Frances and I went the hospital route. She was hospitalized 57 times for alcoholism and or drug addiction. Now, this may not be a record, but it's a hell of a good average. Uh, I would like to express an opinion at this point. I do not think it can ever be accomplished chemically or with a scalpel, that which has to be done spiritually. I ran my, I hit my low in 1956. I ran myself down trying to take care of two small boys, a job, a sick wife, and I became easy prey for the first bug to come along. And this particular bug happened to be bulgur polio. I went to the hospital in Roswell, New Mexico. I was very sick. And uh, I don't have any trouble with the second step where it says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity because while I, my, while I was in the hospital, my wife took a drunk and joined me in the hospital. I can assure you if I could have gotten to her at that time, I'd have killed her. But this is how it was. Now, I don't have any trouble with this step anymore. And they, for instance, uh, an example of mild insanity, spending money I don't have to buy, I don't things that don't need to impress people I don't like. <laughs> this is mild insanity. Okay, violent insanity. One day I came home from work and uh, Frances was drunk and she's mad at me because she was drunk. And, uh, you know, she didn't intend to get drunk. She intended to take a few drinks. Every alcoholic understands that. Anyway, I came through the front door and so happy I didn't even open my mouth. I just came through the front door and she's standing there waiting for me. You know, she hit me twice. She slapped, wham, wham. Yeah. Well, I lost my temper 100%, and that is total insanity for me because I blacked out. I did not realize until after this that 100% loss of my temper is insanity. I blacked out. When I came to, this guy was on the floor and I was a straddle over and I had my hands around her throat and I was choking her to death. Now, in a few more moments, I'd have killed her. But I was restored to sanity. When I realized what I was doing, it terrified me. I have never lost my temper to that degree since then. Incidentally, Francis never did slap me anymore either. <laughs> She said it didn't take her long to examine a hot horseshoe. <laughs> anyway, if I was apparently long about this time when I got out of the hospital, polio, if I was going to survive, and I'm talking about physical survival, I had to get out, so I sued her for divorce. And she conned me out of it. And I'm grateful that she did because if she'd been unsuccessful later on, I was to meet my own sister down the road in alcoholism, and I'd turn my back on her. And later on, my own son... And I would have turned my back on him. Francis switched chemicals on me. She put on the jug and picked up the drugs. And when she did that, she turned loose with a pussycat and grabbed a tiger by the tail. That's our experience. After AA and Alanon, I'd like to say that we we realized we needed this program on an all-time basis, but that isn't true. You know, we came running from the alternative. Didn't know what the hell it was. It was bound to be worse than what we were experiencing. So we were willing to go to a lousy place like Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never heard of Al-Anon. 
I read once in a paper, you know, about AA. This is back in about 1954. I read it the first time. I remember I asked one of the guys to go see my wife. And it said, you want to drink? That's your business. If you want to stop drinking? That's our business. Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, it's a damn good thing that good motives aren't necessary. We'd all be sunk. <laughs> you can thank God for that. Okay, I was kind of like the starving man analogy when I came in. What do you think of a man if, you, if you're suffering from malnutrition and you invite him into your home to break bread with you and he refuses to eat until he understands all the complex processes of digestion, such as calorification, <laughs> systemic absorption, so forth and so on? What do you think of You'd think he's nuts. Well, you'd be right. So sensitive is a human being's soul that only a breath of love can call it in the conscious existence. And so big is a human being so that only God can fill it. Because love is the one thing that God reserved to conquer rebel man. Reason he parries, fear he answers blow for blow, and future interest he meets with present pleasure. But love is the one thing against which the hardest heart will eventually melt. You people just like you loved me when I was unlovable. And they tolerated me when my actions were well nigh intolerable. And I'm grateful that you did. I long about this time. Not this time, and not, this is 1962, long about 1970. Francis had, we'd been in the program uh, eight years. Francis decided she'd take a little vacation from the program, you know, drink for a weekend. She got back to the program four years later. And I found out during this time that there's not too much difference between everything going my way or everything coming at me. One big difference is the direction in which my attitude is facing. Now, I can say this in another manner. Ships ply east and ships ply west by the self-same wind that blows. It's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the direction it goes. I want to tell you what the steps mean in my life, or try to tell you something about what the, the steps mean in my life. Their table of spiritual principles is prepared before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, my enemies are not out there. Or over yonder, around that corner, this is not a secret weapon I'm going to pull on my enemies. They're prepared before me in the presence of my enemies because my enemies are right in here. Freedom is really and truly an inside job. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln said a man just about as miserable as he makes up his mind to be and about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. And these steps are also impersonal. If they'll work for me, they'll work for anybody. I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but I'm the best Buck Newsome I've ever had, and I hope to have a better Buck Newsome next week, and a better one next month, and a better one next year. I am not perfect. I don't expect to be perfect for another couple of years. <laughs> This is the only stick I can use to measure. I can't measure me against you. Any progress that I make, I have to measure me against the way I used to be. 
If I ever get caught in a trap of measuring me against you, then I'm measuring my insides against your outsides. And I'll always come up short. So I have to measure me against the way I used to be. And my progress at times seemed like it's been incremental. But the first step came, uh, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol, our lives become unmanageable. God, as I understand him, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago when he was on this earth, said, of my own self, I can do nothing. It's the Father within me that doeth the works. Now, he was followed by the Apostle Paul, who said, I do the things that I want to do, and I don't do the things I know that I should do. That in the way he said it, the way he said it was, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I do. Well, if between Christ and the Apostle Paul, they're powerless and their life is unmanageable, folks, we're in pretty good company. Pretty good company. The second step expressed in this manner, using the first three words, tell exactly what happened to me, or to us. We came, we eventually came to, then we came to believe. I didn't get here believing. I came to believe, eventually, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, the third step, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. These are all important words without which this program would never have gotten off the ground. It's God as I understand him, or God as you understand him, or God as I misunderstand him. I'd really rather turn my life over to the care of God as he understands himself. Uh, because my understanding of God is changing, but God, as I understand him, doesn't change, you know, from everlasting to everlasting. God, as I understand him, is not dumb. I don't have to give him instructions. I do, but I don't have to, <laughs> you know. And he's a perfect gentleman. He will not come in where he's not wanted. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And God, as I understand him, is not God. No more than my understanding of you is not you. Never has been, never will be. My understanding changes about you, about my son. Uh, God, as I understand him, is not God. Uh, I didn't know what God's will was, but this helped me to understand it. A little woodpecker was pecking away at a lone tree in a clearing one day and a gathering thunderstorm sent a bolt of lightning splitting the tree from top to bottom without harming the little fellow. The birds came from around miles around asking, how'd you do it? How'd you split the tree? When in reality all he was doing was what he was supposed to be doing where he was supposed to be doing it and God did the rest. And for me to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing where I'm supposed to be doing it then God will do the rest. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be this morning. So are you. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. The fourth step made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The best reason for not taking this step before I took it was fifth step. <laughs> now, yeah, somebody identified. <laughs> Uh, now that I'm on the other side of it, looking back, there'd be no reason for the fourth step if the fifth step didn't exist. Because self-knowledge alone won't get it. It's an important part of the program. It's a very important part of the program, but it's not the final answer. 
If it had been the final answer, would have had a four-step program. You'd just gain self-knowledge and you'd have it made. But it's not the final answer. It can be compared to, and I heard this analogy from Clancy, one of my favorites. See the album over there. Uh, you either love this guy or can't stand him. <laughs> anyway, he says, just like being on the deck of the Titanic, self-knowledge, be like digging on the deck of the Titanic, and you know that you already collided with the iceberg, and that the hole in the prow is 68 feet in diameter, and the water is gushing in at the rate of 168,000 gallons per second. In exactly 20, 28 minutes and 42 seconds is going to be over. That's, you know, you're going down to the ship. That's self-knowledge. The problem is, how do you get off the damn ship? <laughs> well, the way you get off the ship is a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth step. The way I keep them getting on another one, just like it doomed, is the tenth, eleventh, and the twelfth step. So, self-knowledge is important, but it's not the final answer. I did the best I could with what I had to work with at the time I took the fourth step, and uh, the purpose of it is to clean out the guts of your mind. And the way I took the fifth step is not the way to do it. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you how I did it. So you'll have to know how not to do it. <laughs> okay. The first time I took the fifth step was, uh, I don't know how long, a couple of years after I came into the program. And I took it with a man in our group, and my attitude was, while I was taking the step with him, I don't give a damn whether he approved or disapproved of anything I was telling him. So therefore, there's for me, there was nothing ventured, and therefore, there was absolutely nothing gained. End of side one. Please turn to set to side two at this point and continue playing. Thank you. The second time I took the fifth step, I took it with Marceline. And looking back on it, this is all in retrospect, because uh, I seem to be able to rationalize faster than I can think. <laughs> Somebody identifies again, huh? Anyway, the uh, second time I took it, uh, took it to Marceline, and looking back on it, I realized what I had done. I was trying to guide and maneuver and control her love for me, which is for free. And love for, love for free has no other desire but to fulfill itself, to love for free. And I thought I had gotten this trash out of the way, you know, in my previous uh, fifth step. But I hadn't. Then I went into a long dry spell, the likes of which I'd never seen before. And I thought, it seemed as if my struggle to get out of this became a harness that bound me into it. I could not get off of this plateau. Now, this is 1968 when this happened. 1968, went down to Lake Whitney where Bob Marceline had the Fantastic. And there, after I heard a man talk, I told Marceline, I said, I have to talk to you. We went up in the treehouse, which is a beautiful place, looks out across the lake. And there I took this woman that I love and I admire and I respect and think the most of, and I told her the worst of me. Now, ego cannot stand this environment. There was a complete deflation of ego at depth. And uh, I thought that our relationship was going to be severed, you know, just Marceline go this way and I'd go this way.
this is what I thought. After I got through, Marceline said, Buck, I love you just the way you are. And I want you to go off to yourself in prayer and meditation, which I did. And then, uh, looking back on it, this is what happened. I, this, you know, this is not me figuring it out. All of a sudden, I knew what happened. I had experienced the forgiveness of God through this woman. She didn't have to forgive me because she'd never forgive, never condemned me in the first place. Who had condemned me? I had condemned me. I was the judge, the jury, the prosecuting attorney. I'd already tried the case, pronounced guilty, served, sentenced, and serving time. I experienced the forgiveness of God through Marceline. And as a result of this, by the grace of God, through the program, I have forgiven Buck Newsom. So, if God is dead, he died since I took the fifth step properly. In... Uh, 1968, James Graham hit bottom. Number one son here sitting in front of me. He hit bottom. He was in uh, TCU at the time, and he hollered for some help. His mother and I went in, spent, spent the biggest part of the one night sitting up with this young man in a motel room. Uh, he was trying to bring down one thing we knew. He was trying to bring down condemnation upon himself, but we knew that what it was, and we refused to condemn him but did tell him that he could uh, either go back, try to go back to school or drop out of school and come home, get him a job, go to AA, which he did. He came home, said the next morning, I remember when he said this, he said, I'd like to come home and just be your son for a while. Yeah, that about, just about tore me up. Anyway, I remember when he said he wanted to go back to school, which was the end of the summer and beginning of the next semester. He'd been going to AA. He was sober. Uh, he, uh, I sat him down in the den there, and I said, well, you're free as a bird. You're free to drink yourself to death or take pills until you die. But you can't do it without knowing that I love you and I care, and I stand ready to help if you call but there's one thing I ain't going to do for you, Buster. He said, what's that? He says, I will not go down the drain with you. And he knew what I was talking about. The sixth and the seventh step, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, and the seventh, I'm going to ask him to remove our shortcomings. You can equate this, these two steps to a pair of tweezers. You know, you can utilize a pair of tweezers to extract the splinter from your hand. Now, they don't give you immunity from splinters for the rest of your life, but if you've got another splinter, you've got the tools to work with, the sixth and the seventh step. Two things motivate me to change, either one of which by themselves are pointless. One is pain and the other is guidance. Discomfort motivates change. Comfort does not motivate change. So when I'm hurting, I know that eventually, if I come back to the program, which I have, have done many times, that I can eventually act myself back into a better state of thinking, which is exactly what happened on this meeting when, when 
here. I was invited to come over here and talk to you people. I had a lot more feeling sorry for myself, whatever, you know, to do at home. <laughs> and I thought, hell, I don't want to go over there. But don't make any difference what you think. Action is a magic word. It says that in the big book. Action is a magic word. So I can think whatever I want. As long as I take the correct action, the results will be just as good as if my motives had been perfect to begin with. So I don't have to have good motives. I just have to take the right actions. And it's action is the magic word. Action is the magic word. This is the only thing that people are going to understand. They're going to understand my actions, not my intentions. The eighth step made a list of all persons who had harmed came willing to make amends to them all. This one stopped me dead in my tracks when I hit it. But Chuck Chamberlain helped me there because I had some that were high on this list whose names are high on this list are already dead. And he said, Buck, when you became willing, you made amends to the dead. And this released me there. The ninth step made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. I'm trying to live an amended life as the result of these steps. I sat down not too long after I took this step and wrote both my sons a letter and it went something like this. Dear son, I tried, God knows, to be a good daddy, but I failed many times and I hurt you. For all of these times that I hurt you, I want to ask that you forgive me. Period. No buts. Signed, Love Daddy. And I want to tell you something, folks. There ain't nothing in the world like hearing your own child say, I forgive you. This takes the hurt in this child and baptizes it and turns it into good, healthy growth. Even if they got to call and tell you all this, collect on the phone. <laughs> now, again, if God has forgiven me and my children have forgiven me, then this is a mandate for me to forgive me also. If I can't, then I'm safe in this little cesspool I have dug for myself and filled with my own vomit. Because that's what self-judgment is. Number two, son. He and I used to be getting quite a few arguments. This happened quite a few years ago. Number one, son, went on and finished college and finished graduate school. And he's a Ph.D. chemist. Imagine that. I'm proud of him. Stand up, son. <laughs> Stand up. <laughs> proud of my daughter-in-law, too. Uh, where was it? <laughs> I, okay, number two, son. Yeah, he, uh, he went, we used to get in arguments. One night, his mother had gone to an AA meeting, and Jane Grimm was in college, and uh, we were there by ourselves, and uh, we got in an argument. And I don't remember what prompted it, but finally, I was, all of a sudden, I just knew intuitively knew uh, what used to baffle me. Okay, I intuitively knew what was wrong. This child, young man, 
felt obligated to love me because I was his father. I just knew this. And I said, look, son, I love you, but you don't have to love me. If you ever do, that's great. That's fringe benefit. But the have to is gone. You don't have to love me anymore. And we sit there and watch the rest of the TV program. That stopped the argument. Uh, after the TV program, he said, I think I'll go to bed. I said, fine, son, good night. And uh, he started upstairs. And about halfway upstairs, he turned around and says, hey, Pop. I said, what do you want? He said, I sure do love you. And then he turned one on upstairs and went to bed. And then I got up and went into the utility room and I wept tears of gratitude. Because it's so often in a spiritual principle, it seems to be a conflict. In releasing him, I bound him tighter to me than he's ever been before. I gave him the freedom to not love me and then he turned right around and gave me all of his love. Now, if God is dead, he died since then. There's some promises that come at this point in the program, after the ninth step. It's on the bottom page 83 and top page 84 in the big book. It says, we're painstaking about this phase of our development. We're going to be amazed before we're half through because we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend serenity and we will know peace. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in ourselves and gain interest in our fellows. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. Feel it, fear of people in them, economic insecurity will leave us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not, for they are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly, but they will always materialize if we work for them. These are the promises after the ninth step. From the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the tenth step, continue to take personal inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. I don't like the step. But it doesn't say I have to like it. It just says I have to do it. <laughs> continue to take personal inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. I do not have to like it. and I, I don't like it most of the time, but I, when I do take it, I get along a lot better. I uh, took it to my boss the other day, and uh, it surprised him. <laughs> you know, people don't have much of a defense after that. <laughs> Seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry it out. Okay, my efforts at this step is just like trying to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or an al -Anon pamphlet at night in the dark by lightning flash. <laughs> It sure as hell is fast when it comes, but it don't last very long. <laughs> Brilliant when it comes. Okay. In, uh... <laughs> We're going to ascend? <laughs> okay, the twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps we tried to carry this message. What message? The message of my own spiritual awakening. How did it come about? The result of these steps. It's hardly likely that I'm going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of 11 steps that I haven't taken. Okay, 
the uh, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and others. This says spiritual awakening. This is awakening has come to stay so far. The experience that I had in combat was a spiritual experience that came to pass. Didn't come to stay. The spiritual awakening has come to stay so far, and I'm very grateful. I've had some luck at 12-step on alcoholics as well as Al-Anons. Not too long after my, I had to commit my wife to Big Spring State Hospital on July the 7th of 62 for alcoholism and drug addiction. Not too long after that, my sister, who's nine years older than I am, she hit the bottom. She and mother got in a fight, and mother died in 1966, and uh, she lived in a little house behind my sister there, and she had a big five-cell flashlight, about that long, you know, and uh, Jim slapped her, and mother hit her over the head with a flashlight, <laughs> drove her to her knees. I said, good for you. <laughs> anyway, I went down and talked to my sister, not then, but a few days later. And when I, when I got there, Jim was dry, and we exchanged a few niceties, and we sit down over a cup of coffee in the kitchen, and I said, sis, I got one question I've got to ask you. She said, what's that? I said, do you want to stop drinking? She said, yes, I do. I can't, and I'm scared. And she started crying. Then I started crying. And we had a squalling good time. <laughs> but I did end up taking her to her first meeting. And uh, her dry date is July the 26th of 1962. And uh, I carried a small portion of the message to my own sister. I carried, I actually, actually carried uh, the alcoholic to the message in that particular case the first time. And uh, in 1963, I was working for Gulf Oil. I retired from Gulf in 1980. Went to work for an independent. I retired and went to work. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this guy that worked for Gulf at the same time I did, uh, the company had warned him several times, and they fired him in 1963. Uh, during the lunch hour, November the 11th, 1963, I called... Marceline's husband, Bob, with the idea in mind of conning him and the going, Archie just lived about three blocks from me, going over in 12-step in Archie. Now, whoever heard of an Al-Anon conning a con artist? <laughs> the next thing I knew, he had me talked into it, and I was over there fixing to knock on the door, and as I started knocking on the door, I remember saying, my God, what am I doing here? And that was a reverent prayer. It was not profanity. And Archie came to the door, and he invited me in, we exchanged a few niceties. I said, you know, real subtle-like. I said, Archie, i got one question i got to ask you. He said, what's that? I said, do you want to stop drinking? And that was the day that he had been fired from the company, and he was vulnerable. And uh, so the upshot of the whole ball of wax was he, uh, we couldn't go to a meeting that night. There wasn't a meeting available that night. And uh, he called up my wife and told her that, he didn't feel like he'd go the next day when I was going to take him. I said, you tell him, did we just go dead here? Yep, dead. Okay. The, uh, well, I haven't said anything interesting anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway. We took him, uh, Bob, Marceline, and Harold, and Francis, and myself went to the Basin Group over in Odessa 
and we took Archie. And uh, Harold and Bob spoke that night. Archie identified. And uh, this is November 11th, 63. And he hadn't had a drink since then. I didn't carry the alcoholic to the message. I carried, I carried the, I didn't carry the message to the alcoholic. I carried the alcoholic to the message. And about 2,000 years ago, God, as I understand him, when he was walking on the face of this earth in the body of a man, said, uh, well, there's some men took, took a sick man to a meeting, and there's such a crowd they couldn't get in, so they let him down through the roof. And he said, your faith, your belief in the power greater than yourself has made him whole. We carried the alcoholic to the message. The other one that I'll tell you about, and everybody's entitled to one mistake, I think. <laughs> this guy's wife called me, this is 1969, and uh, he'd been off on a running drunk. I don't know how long he'd been gone. But she called, called Commission on Alcoholism, and they, I'm about as anonymous as a phone book. That's why I want it, too. How in the hell do you call Joe C. if you don't know what his last name is? You can't even look it up in the phone book. Anyway, they got in touch with me, and I told her this was March of 1969. And there's still some snow on the ground in Midland. And they live kind of out in the country. At least it was out in the country at that time. It's not out in the country now. But I went, and I told her I'd bring her some literature out. So the next day, I got some literature together and started out there. And I was restored to sanity on the way out there because I had a mental picture of me sitting there talking to this woman, this drunken husband, come in, you know. <laughs> so I went back to town and got me an Allen on woman. And she went with me. <laughs> we went out there and sure enough, I hadn't been there very long. Here come T.J. Well, T.J.'s a raunchy drunk even when he's sober. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the situation gravitated into Maxine, ended up talking to Joanne, and I ended up 12-step and T.J., you know, and I'd give him the old pitch, you know, to just like a bullet ricocheting off armor plate. You know, everything I threw at him, y'all, I just, no way was it getting through to him. And we left there. I told Maxine, I said, well, one thing I know for sure, that son of a bitch ain't never going to quit drinking. <laughs> he hadn't had a drink since then. <laughs> I don't know what they look like when they're ready to stop drinking. I don't know what people look like when they're ready to stop. Uh, they don't have a sign up here, I'm ready, you know. <laughs> but you know what it tells us in the big book? We tried to carry the message. It doesn't say we successfully carried it. We tried to carry the message. Okay. Now then, uh, on his uh, second birthday... He was hung up on semantics. He couldn't say, my name's T.J. and I'm an alcoholic. He'd say, my name's T.J. and I got a drinking problem. Okay, he'd, about for two years, he'd see me in the Al-Anon room sitting there on the divan, and he'd come in, sidle up to me, you know, and he'd just sit down when nobody was right there close where they could hear him. He'd say, Buck, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I said, hell, you don't have to worry about that. You own a requirement for membership. It's hard to stop drinking. You have that requirement. Don't get hung up on semantics. And he'd go off, and that would satisfy him for a while. And uh, then he'd, same thing, three or four months later, it'd repeat itself. And here he comes. I can see him out of the corner of my eye, kind of sidling up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he came in there one afternoon, and I don't know, he hit me at the wrong time. <laughs> and 
He started out the same old way, you know, and I said, T.J., why in the hell don't you get you a jug and go do some research and find out if you're an alcoholic and quit bothering me? <laughs> he stood up and said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that. I didn't know what I was supposed to say. He, didn't, he forgot to give me my copy of the script. <laughs> anyway, uh... Not too long after that, he had a birthday coming up. It was his second birthday. And I didn't hear about it because there was a closed meeting over there. And uh, Frances was chairman. She got up there and opened the meeting and said, Well, we have uh, uh, three birthdays tonight. Two alcoholics and one problem drinker. I <laughs> <laughs> said old T.J. got up there and he got behind the podium, you know, and he went through all sorts of gyrations before he ever opened his mouth. And he said, my name's T.J. and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> now then, you know, he called me as his sponsor, you know, and there's some alcoholics besides him that call me a sponsor, you know. But, you know, he said, hell, I didn't have a chance to begin with. I got a damn Al-Anon for a sponsor. <laughs> but he's still doing fine. And uh, practice these principles in all of our affairs. The first, first step is honesty. The second is hope. The third is faith. The fourth, fifth, and sixth is courage. The seventh is humility. The eighth, ninth, and tenth is responsibility. The eleventh is patience. And the twelfth is love. These principles in all of my affairs. And the most important one of all, I think, is love. Just like that little Alateen told us this morning. I want to get ready to close now. I want to tell you a poem that expresses something about God as I understand it. It starts off rather simple. It ends up very beautifully. It's not written by me. It's written by Robert W. Service. It was my love of poetry that drove my wife to drink. So she said at one time. <laughs> but the entitlement of this is The Wonder. I wish that I could understand the moving marble of my hand. I watch my fingers turn and twist and the supple bending of my wrist. The dainty touch of fingertip and the steel intensity of grip. A tool of exquisite design with pride. I think it's mine. It's mine. Then there's a wonder of my eyes where houses, hills, and seas, and skies, and waves of light converge and pass and print themselves as on a glass. Line, form, and color live within me. I am the beauty that I see. I could write a book of sighs about the wonders of my eyes. Then there's a wondrous wonder of my heart. It plays so faithfully its part. I hear it running sound and sweet, and it never seems to miss a beat. Between the cradle and the grave, it never falters, staunch and brave. Alas, I have not the art to tell the wonders of my heart. Then there's a wondrous wonder of my brain, that marvelous machine that brings all consciousness and wonderings, that lets me from myself leap out and watch my body walk about. It's hopeless. All my words are vain to tell the wonders of my brain. But do you think, O oh patient friends who hear these stanzas to the end, that I myself would glorify? You're just as marvelous as I. And all creation, in our view, is quite as marvelous as you. Then come, let us on the seashore stand and wonder at a grain of sand or into the meadow pass and marvel at a blade of grass, or cast our visions high and far and thrill with wonder at a star. 
a host of stars, night's holy tent, huge, glittering with wonderment. If wonder being great and small, then what of him who made it all? In eyes and brain and heart and limb, let's see the wondrous work of him. In house and hill, in sword and sea, in bird and beast, in flower and tree, in everything from sun to sod, the wonder and the awe of God. Ladies and gentlemen, I've stopped trying to grasp the message and I'm concentrating more on sharing what little I've got. And in so doing, my own store has increased. Take this message, not the one I give you, the one you get after you fire any portion of this conference through the crucible of your own experience and give the refined product to another person and your own store will increase. This is new wine, ladies and gentlemen. You can't put it in those old wineskins and you can't sew this new cloth on that old garment. I think this is another way of saying half measures avail us nothing. I asked for help just before I got up here. If God is dead, he died since then. Thank you. Wasn't that beautiful? See, ladies, we got a lot of hurting men out there that have the same feelings that we have. I forgot to do something at the beginning of the